Hi, I'm Devlin Camp. Thanks for joining me. Over on QueerSerial.com or on my Instagram at QueerSerial, you can explore the complete Queer Serial episode guide. You can also buy Queer History merch, explore my archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary currently in production, and subscribe to listen to bonus episodes. If you subscribe to any of my bonus content through Spotify, Patreon, or Apple Podcasts, your subscription supports all of my ongoing LGBTQ history projects. Thank you so much. There are links to everything here in the episode notes or at QueerSerial.com. This is Season 5 of Queer Serial, a standalone miniseries. Heads up, this season features sensitive sexual content. These episodes detail the true story of a panic that swept Boise, Idaho in 1955. A panic that continues to spread and damage our communities today. Quiet, noisy out in Boise, Idaho. They come down from Butte, Montana. They come up from Santa Ana. They come all the way from San Antonio. They come in from Oklahoma, riding on a pedal pony just to join that noisy, boisy rodeo. Idaho, 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 Idaho. How they'll ever get in quiet, I don't know. Every day's a celebration, it's a steady occupation, being noisy out in Boise, Idaho. Most people think that homosexuality is confined to major cities. It is not. In 1955, there were reports of a homosexual underworld in Boise, Idaho. Population at the time, 34,000. The people of Boise tried to stamp out homosexuality. They discovered it couldn't be done. In the learning process, everybody suffered. It began with this headline in the Idaho Daily Statesman. The next day, the paper ran an editorial entitled, Crush the Monster, Crush Homosexuality. The year-long investigation that followed shook Boise to its foundations. Everyone was suspect. Men were afraid to be seen together. Weekly poker games among men who had known each other for years were canceled. There were reports that many high school boys were involved. A prominent banker, a leading attorney, were arrested, along with clerks, repairmen, salesmen. Altogether, hundreds were interrogated in this house on a quiet residential street. When it was over 15 months later, One homosexual was in a state penitentiary with a life sentence. Two received 15-year terms, one 10 years, two seven years, and scores of lives were ruined. I'm Devlin Camp, and this is Gay Panic, Episode 8, Trial in Boise. You just heard CBS Reports, The Homosexual, hosted by Mike Wallace on March 7, 1967, introducing something like 40 million American viewers to the phenomenon of homosexuality. Regular listeners of Queer Serial might recall listening to several clips of this special back in Season 3, Episode 7. It was a television event, a moment of mass education on the subject of homosexuality in America 12 years after the gay panic in Boise, Idaho. For as long as these general American viewers have known, homosexuals were doing something against the rules. What that something is specifically, well, it's hard to define. Which brings us to Boise. Mike Wallace explains on CBS, a town that tried to wipe out their homosexuals to no success. Shortly before the CBS special aired, our tenacious reporter, John Garrisey, continued his search for answers so that he might understand just what happened at that final trial of the Boise Gay Panic.
The law defines infamous crimes against nature as any and all forms of sexual intercourse that are unnatural. Unnatural can mean any sex that doesn't normally lead to procreation. There have been several versions of this rule on the books over the years. Another version was against lewd and lascivious acts, which were considered any sexual act with a minor or a person of the same sex. Some states have had these laws on the books for centuries, going back to 1500s England, enacted under Henry VIII. The vice of buggery was copied over into the laws of the American colonies, rewording the British felony as the abominable and detestable crime against nature, not to be named among Christians with either mankind or beast. It was punishable by death without the benefit of clergy. The punishment was later adjusted to a measly 60 years max in prison. In the 1860s, when Boise was first established as that territorial penitentiary was being built, Homosexual acts were known to be pretty common in the territory among the trappers and lumbermen who spent several months of every year away from women and their families. But colonizing the West meant, eventually, laying down those colony laws. A century later in Boise, in 1965, reporter John Garrisey sits down with the government's queer catcher, the man who questioned hundreds of suspects in a little house on 16th Street. Agent William Fairchild. Garrisey is most perplexed by the various sentences for each of the men charged. So he asks Fairchild why some of the men were promised psychiatric care if they confessed, but then they were sent to prison. Fairchild says, I did what I was told, and I was told that in certain cases, if the homosexuals pleaded guilty, they would get psychiatric care. I'm not responsible if they didn't. Besides, I always said that I was not authorized to promise anything or to make deals. And that's on the tapes. Yes, the tapes. The tapes of confessions recorded in the house on 16th Street. Garrisey wonders what became of those over the last decade. He asks Fairchild why he never appeared in court as the person who recorded those tapes. Fairchild says... All my findings were turned over to the prosecutor's office. The convictions were not based on my tapes. They weren't even played in court. All those who pleaded guilty signed statements, and I never countersigned them as a witness. What good would my appearing achieve except to ruin my anonymity? Why don't Fairchild or the prosecutors want the courts to hear how the interrogations went down? What was said or done to make these men confess to the crimes they were convicted of? How long were they questioned? What was promised to them, if anything? Keeping Fairchild and his tapes out of the court keeps the jury from being able to hear detail or nuances or possible manipulation. What happened on 16th Street was between William Fairchild and his suspect. When Garrisey gets his hands on the final trial's transcript, he discovers that the final suspect's defense attorney was also determined to hear those tapes play in court. When officers picked up the clothing salesman Gordon Larson on December 11, 1955, Fairchild questioned him about his interaction two months prior with 20-year-old Eldon Halverson, the man who named so many of the men questioned by Fairchild on 16th Street. After his visit to the house and his subsequent arrest, Larson lost his job, his fiancée, and moved to Spokane after the accusation went public. 
he lost another job in Spokane because he had to attend a hearing in Boise. But he found yet another job and a new fiancé, and is finally on track to begin his new life, if only prosecuting attorney Blaine Evans would allow his trial to be scheduled. The prosecutor wants Larson to plead guilty, but Larson isn't giving in. Of the 16 charged, almost everyone else pleaded guilty and faced sentences, from probation to life in prison. Most got some prison time. One person, Paris Martin, was the only person to plead and be found not guilty. So there's precedent for Gordon Larson to do the same. Larson's attorney, Vernon Smith, continues to push for a court date. He keeps trying to meet with Prosecutor Blaine Evans, calling him, setting up meetings that Evans doesn't show up to. The attorney, Vernon Smith, makes motions with the court to see the documents of the case, especially the tape that Bill Fairchild recorded while interrogating Gordon Larson. Smith wants that tape subpoenaed. The court denies that motion, but the trial is finally set for November 19, 1956. Both sides, the accuser and the prosecutors, and the accused and his defense attorney, prepare to tell the jury what happened one year ago on that afternoon when Gordon and Eldon met. Prosecuting attorney Blaine Evans puts his main witness on the stand, 21-year-old Eldon Halverson. The prosecutor begins the questioning. Would you give us your name, please? Eldon Halverson. And where do you reside? In Wisconsin. In Wisconsin? Yes. Calling your attention to October 3rd, 1955, where were you residing on that date? Idaho? Yes. Are you acquainted with the defendant in this action, Gordon Larson? Yes. Had you known him prior to October 3rd, 1955? No. Did you know who he was? I had seen him, yes. And you knew him by sight, did you not? Yes. And where were you when you first saw him? In the Greyhound bus depot. And where were you in the bus depot? In the men's room. And you saw the defendant in the men's room? Yes. Did you and the defendant have any conversation at that time? No. And then what happened? Why, I walked a block north. I had my car across from Hendren's, and I was just getting into my car, and he drove up in his car. I, I don't remember what was said, but he, we agreed to meet out at Julia Davis Park. When were you to meet out there? At noon. And what happened when you arrived there? Mr. Larson came. And did you have a conversation with him at that time? I think he just said to follow him up to his apartment. And you each drove separately to his apartment? Yes. And where was his apartment located? In the Highland Village. Was it Hills Village? Hills Village, I mean. And then what happened? We went upstairs to his apartment. Now, when you went into his apartment, what happened, Mr. Halverson? Well, we went into the bedroom. We each dropped our clothes. Dropped your pants? Pants, yes. And then what did you do? He took my penis in his mouth. He did? Yes. And then what happened? Well, I said I wanted to leave. And what else happened while you were there on the bed? Well, he wanted me to take his penis in my mouth, and I said I didn't want to. And finally, I did, but I didn't suck on it. So then what happened after that? Did you leave? Yes. Did you have an orgasm, Mr. Halverson? No. Why did you break this relationship off? What happened to cause you to break that off? Well, I just had a change of mind or something. I am asking this merely for the purpose of the record. Both you and the defendant are male persons, are you not? Yes. I think that is all. Mr. Smith, you may cross-examine. Mr. Halverson, I believe we have met in court before, haven't we? Yes. 
at a preliminary hearing? Yes. So you grant me, sir, that I know your voice? That's right. Now, last night at a quarter to eleven o'clock, did you just get into town? No. Last night at a quarter to eleven o'clock, a voice called me on the telephone, whose voice I identified as yours and told me that it was Eldon Halverson. Was that your voice? We're going to object as outside the scope of the direct examination. There's no foundation laid. It is incompetent, irrelevant, and immaterial. Is this preliminary to something, Mr. Smith? Yes, Your Honor. Objection overruled. It was you who called me last night. Yes. And I believe the conversation went like this. Is this Mr. Smith? And I said, yes. Who is this? And you said, I need some legal advice. Is that correct? Yes. To which I said, who is this? Yes. To which you said, this is Eldon Halverson, and I need some legal advice as to whether I have to testify tomorrow. Yes. To which I told you, Mr. Halverson, I represent Gordon Larson and cannot talk to you. If the court please, we want to object to this as an extraneous matter and irrelevant to the issues in this case. Objection is sustained now. In other words, I will ask one more question. Yes. I told you if you needed legal advice as to whether or not you would have to testify, you should go to see an attorney of your own choosing. We are going to make the same objection. This matter is irrelevant to the trial of this case. State generally what this is going to lead to, Mr. Smith. In the 15 years I have been practicing law, Your Honor, this is the first time that a witness for the state in a criminal proceeding has called me at night wanting legal advice, wanting to know whether or not he had to testify. I refuse to talk to him. I probably wish I had talked to him now. I don't know what he had in his mind. It may well be that I don't know what he wanted to tell me. I want to find out what he wanted to tell me about this case. This is too collateral. I had in mind that you were going to show that he had made some suggestion to you, or an offer of some kind, something of that sort. Maybe as something he wanted to say. But unless you're prepared to prove that, I'm going to have to sustain the objection. This is simply an excursion, and that apparently is all that it is. Very well. I believe you said, Mr. Halverson, that up there in the apartment you wanted to leave. Is that correct? Yes. I believe you meant, and I believe you once stated, the whole thing repulsed you. Is that correct? Yes. It repulsed you? Yes. Do I understand that you mean to imply from that that you are not a homosexual? Yes. That you are or are not? I am not. You are not. I believe you stated that you just returned from Salt Lake City on a trip. Yes. You were in the company of one Charles Brokaw on that trip to Salt Lake City, were you not? We're going to object to this as being irrelevant outside the issues of this case. He says he is not a homosexual. That's right, so he isn't. He can answer yes or no. You were in the company of one Charles Brokaw on this trip? Yes. And that was a two or three day trip, was it not, to Salt Lake? Yeah. And Charles Brokaw is an admitted, confessed homosexual, stands accused, tried, and convicted in this court. Is that correct? We are going to object to this as incompetent, irrelevant, and immaterial, an attempt to bring in a side issue. Sustained. Now I'm going to hand you what has been marked as Defendant's Exhibit A, being a certified docket of the Justice of Peace, J.M. Lampert, entitled State of Idaho versus Redacted. Now I will ask you, Mr. Halverson, if you are not one and the same person- Now I'm going to object to this, Your Honor. This document is not in evidence and hasn't been identified and hasn't been offered. Yes. I want to ask my question before- This is obviously an attempt to prejudice the jury, and we ask that it then be admitted if he wants to offer it, then let us make our objection. Well, if this person is not one and the same person, then the docket is immaterial. Are you leading up to some admission or confession? Well, let me ask him the question. 
Are you one and the same? Then we want to renew our objection. We wish to see the exhibit. This witness, your honor, has testified that he is not a homosexual and that he left the house up there because it repulsed him. And he claims that this defendant had pursued him. I wish to show that in the case that in four cases... We will object to the defendant's exhibits A, B, and C on the grounds that they are incompetent, irrelevant, and immaterial. They are certainly not relevant to the issues of this case. Objection is sustained. Very well. Now I will make an offer of proof. Yes. Comes now the defendant who would offer to prove by the witness, Eldon Halverson, that this witness, Eldon Halverson, is one and the same person referred to in defendant's exhibit A for identification as Eldon Halverson, being a certified copy of the docket entry in the case entitled State of Idaho versus wherein was accused of having committed the infamous crime against nature with this witness. The purpose of our offer of proof in these matters, Your Honor, was threefold. First, this defendant has taken the stand and testified in such a manner as to lead this jury to believe that Gordon Larson engaged him and encouraged him to come to his house. Secondly, in his testimony, he testified in such a way as to lead this jury to believe that he is an innocent young man who was repulsed by this act, when in fact this offer would tend to prove and show that he is a frequent engager in homosexual acts. Fundamentally, Mr. Smith, this is an attempt to weaken the credibility to impeach the witness by showing specific immoral acts not connected with the particular offense on trial. The objection was made. I take it a like objection would be made to the offer of proof? It is, Your Honor, for the purpose of the record. The offer is refused and the objection sustained. Now, Mr. Halverson, have you ever discussed the facts of this case with anybody else prior to this time? How do you mean by facts of this case? Well, Mr. Halverson, have you ever told the story that you have just told here to any individual before, particularly referring to any police officer or the prosecuting attorney's office? Did you? Yes. Who did you first tell this story to, Mr. Halverson? Bill Fairchild. Bill Fairchild. And who is Bill Fairchild? A private investigator. He was the private investigator who had been employed or was in charge of this extensive investigation that was going on? Now, we are going to object to that on the ground. There is no foundation. It is incompetent, irrelevant, and immaterial. And it is collateral to the main issue of the trial here. Sustained. Well, Bill Fairchild was an investigator anyway. Yes. Now, how did you ever happen to get together and talk to Bill Fairchild about this? We will object to that on the ground that it is incompetent, irrelevant, and immaterial. Sustained. Well, when did you talk to Mr. Bill Fairchild? It was during the early part of December. The early part of December. You were brought to him, weren't you? By a police officer? No. How did you get in touch with him? We are going to make the same objection. This is a collateral matter. It is not relevant to the issues of this case. Overruled. Charles Brokaw made a phone call to me about noon and said I should come over to Boise and talk to Bill Fairchild. And what were you going to talk about? Or what did you talk about? I'm going to object to this, Your Honor. It has nothing to do with the trial of this case. It is incompetent, irrelevant, and immaterial. Outside of the scope of the direct examination, certainly. Overruled. Well, I will object on the ground that is hearsay. He knows what he talked about. Objection is overruled. Go ahead. Well, might I help you? You were called over to discuss your personal involvement in homosexual activity in and around Ada County. You were under investigation yourself, were you not? I don't know. Well, they got you in to see how many different people you had been having homosexual relations with. I came in voluntarily. Yes, you came in voluntarily. But that is what you came over for, and that is what you talked about. Yes. Yes, and you involved yourself with- Wait a minute. This has nothing to do with the case. 
I know what his answer is going to be, but I don't think it is proper we should get off into the side issue of the homosexual investigation. Overruled. You did involve yourself in homosexual activities with these three named individuals, did you not? Yes. Yes. And at that time, then you occupied the position of one who has admitted having homosexual acts and were, at that time, subject to the possibility of criminal accusation and criminal complaint. Were you not? Yes. Yes. But you have never to this day been accused of your own homosexual acts, have you? No. No. This man, Fairchild, he was not a part of the prosecuting attorney's office, was he? I don't know. He was not. He was not a part of the Boise City Police, was he? No. He was a private investigator that had been hired to conduct this wholesale investigation. Now, you were promised by him, were you not, that if you would cooperate with him and involve other people, including this man, that you would not be prosecuted. No. You were not. No. And yet, an admitted homosexual, you have never to this day been accused. No. Come, come now, Mr. Smith. Really, this is going far, far afield, Your Honor. He said that he was not promised anything. We want to object to Mr. Smith's arguing with the witness and making an argument to the jury Sustained. here. The facts are that you have not yet been accused of any crime. You have not been charged for your homosexual acts with Mr. R nor Mr. R nor Mr. R nor Mr. Larson, have you? No. No. And you came back here from Kansas City, didn't you? No. Well, where'd you come from? From Wisconsin. Voluntarily? Under a subpoena. Well, you got on the train by yourself? Yes. And you came by yourself. I object to that. He testified he came back under subpoena. He didn't come back voluntarily. Sustained. And you did not come back in the custody of any police officer, did you? No. You came back to fulfill your bargain that you would even testify against this man with the assurance and belief that still you would not be prosecuted. No. Now you were in attendance on the 11th day of December, 1955, in a private home out here in the Hyde Park edition, where Gordon Larson was brought in the afternoon for an extensive interrogation and inquisition. Were you not? Yes. And in the course of that grueling inquisition, you were brought in to be displayed to Gordon Larson. Were you not? Yes. You came over freely in your own automobile, did you not? Yes. And when you were brought in, this Bill Fairchild showed you to Gordon Larson. Yes. And there you were asked to tell this story about the same story you have told today. That's right. That's right. And when you were finished in the presence of Gordon Larson, now, this was all before the arrest, you were asked in the presence of Gordon Larson, Halverson, will you testify to those facts under oath? Did that occur? We're going to object to this question. I don't see where it is relevant to the issue here. Overruled. Did you so testify or state? I don't remember those actual words. But it was, that was the effect of it, that you were asked whether you would testify against him under oath, and you said yes, or something to that effect. I think... To be correct, it is, could you testify? Well, all right. We will split the frog hair, and that is what it will be then. Now then, following that Bill Fairchild handed you three $1 bills and said, Now, Halverson, Eldon, you may go. And turned to the defendant, Gordon Larson, and says, See, Gordon, he is cooperating, and we give him money and let him go home. Object to all this as incompetent, irrelevant, and immaterial, Your Honor. Is that right? Overruled. You may answer. I would like to have the question broken down at least, Your Honor. All right, split it up. Very well, sir. Just as you were about to leave, this Bill Fairchild person handed three $1 bills to you to buy gas with, didn't he? 
I don't remember. You don't remember whether it was two or three? I don't remember. Well, do you remember he gave you money to buy gas with? Yes, I remember he did once. Yes. He gave you money to buy gas with, and then he turned to the defendant, Gordon Larson, and he says, See, Gordon, this man is cooperating, and we are letting him go. Why don't you cooperate with us? Object to that. That is the purest sort of hearsay. It assumes facts, not in evidence, and I don't see where it is relevant. You may answer. Well, it happens at the time I wasn't working and I was broke, so I had no way to get home. And I told him when he called me, and he wanted to talk to me and wanted me to come over, and I said... I just didn't have any money to get over there. I was broke and hadn't been working. Did it occur to you that he told you that you could go? Yes, he said I could go. And then commented to Gordon Larson to the effect that, see, he is cooperating? I remember nothing like that. I don't remember that. Now, this Greyhound bus depot that you claim you met Gordon Larson at, that is in Boise? Yes. Mr. Halverson, you met Gordon Larson on the corner by Hendron's, did you not? Yes. Yes. You didn't meet him at the Greyhound bus depot, did you? I saw him there. You saw him? You didn't talk to him in there, did you? No. Well, now you went to the Greyhound bus depot yourself. Yes, I was in there. The Greyhound bus depot, where you say that you first saw him, had at that time a sort of general reputation of being a place where homosexual persons sought out other homosexual persons. Did it not? I don't know. You didn't know that? I didn't know. Now you have no business with Gordon Larson, did you? No. As I understood your testimony, you only knew who he was. You didn't even know him. Yes. Then I take it from that, Mr. Halverson, that regardless of whether you went to the monkey cage or where you went, you were out searching for a homosexual activity that day. Is that correct? No. You were not. I was not. You were not. Do you say that Gordon Larson told you to meet him in a monkey cage? At Julia Davis Park, yes. At the monkey cage? Yes. And you went down there? Yes. You didn't know the man. No. You had no business with him. No. There was no legitimate reason in the world why you would go down to meet him, was there? No. You were looking for a homosexual experience, weren't you? Not in the Greyhound bus depot. Well, down at the monkey cage, if that is where you went, you were in the hopes, were you not, that you might inveigle this man to engage in a homosexual experience with you? Weren't you? I had already met him up at Hendron's. Were you in the hopes of trying to engage with him, if you could, in a homosexual experience? Well, it was just taken for granted. That if you could get him to do it, that is what you were after? It wasn't my thinking. It wasn't your thinking. That isn't what I had in mind. Will you please explain to me what legitimate thing you could possibly have had in mind? I'm going to object. He has answered the question. Overruled. He may answer. The court transcript shows that Eldon Halverson doesn't answer. He sits quietly. Larson's attorney continues to question the accuser, trying to hear exactly what was said that day when Halverson cruised Larson. I believe your story was that he said, meet you at the park. Yes. And you had not spoken to him before that. No. You saw him in the bus depot and you didn't say a word to him. No. You didn't know him and you say all at once he drove up to the side of you and said, hi, meet me at the park. Is that correct? I don't remember the words. Well, is that about all that happened? Yes. Yes. Nothing more. He just says, meet me at the park. So you met him at the park. Yes. And what happened down at the park when he came up to you? Did you talk down there? He just asked me to follow him up to his apartment. He didn't talk about anything else? We may have, but... You don't remember. In other words, all you can remember, he drove up and parked and again says, hi, follow me home. I don't know all what was said. We talked. So anyway, it is your story that he approached you and asked you to meet him down at the monkey cage, 
And then he asked you to go to his apartment. Yes. That is your story. Yes. And without any discussions, without your having any legitimate or lawful business of any kind with him, without discussing what you were going to do, you just simply went along with his suggestions as you put it. The facts of the matter, Mr. Halverson, are these, aren't they? That you followed Mr. Larson home after you had asked where he was going, and he said he was going home for lunch. That you followed him up to his apartment, and when you got up there, you approached him on a homosexual act, and he told you to get out. Those are the facts, aren't they? No. I have no further questions of this witness, Your Honor. Smith has proven that Halverson is a homosexual, one that accepts bribes, however small, and a homosexual that rolls on other homosexuals, perhaps under intimidation. But why did Halverson call the defense attorney last night? As we continue this heavily abridged multi-day trial reenactment from the real transcript, the prosecutor, Evans, must now go against the original story that Halverson was an innocent youth seduced by Larson. Now Prosecutor Evans has to push the idea that Halverson, who is clearly gay, only went after Larson because Larson has a reputation as a homosexual. But the catch? If they're both homosexuals, then they are accomplices in this crime. Blaine Evans needs to find corroborating evidence, separate from Halverson's testimony, that proves Gordon Larson broke the law. The prosecution calls their next witness. The prosecution calls Ernest G. Quentin to the stand for direct examination. Will you state your name, please? Ernest G. Quinton. Where do you reside, Mr. Quinton? 1503 Vermont Avenue. What is your occupation? Police officer. Referring particularly to December 11th, 1955, were you so employed? Yes. And were you at that time on a special assignment, sir? Yes, I was. And what was that assignment, generally? To conduct investigations on homosexuality. Right. What did you do when you first saw the defendant on that day? Well, I went in his house and talked to him. That would be his apartment? Yes, his apartment. I see. What, if you recall, was the substance of that conversation? I asked him if he would accompany me to my office and talk. I see. Then, did he agree to come? Yes, he did. Did you place this man under arrest? No, I did not. And he dressed, and we went out and got in the car and drove to our office. And where is that, sir? 1019 North 16th. Is that still your office? No, it isn't. What type of office was that? It was a private home with an office attached. And is that the office of the investigation staff on this homosexual matter? Yes. And Sergeant Quentin, what did you do upon arriving? Did you take the defendant into your office? Yes, I did. I took him inside. Who was present there? The chief of police, uh, Jim Brandon, and I'm pretty sure that the sheriff, Doc House, was there, and Bill Fairchild. And what, if anything, occurred thereafter, if you know? No, let me ask a question in aid of an objection. Yes? Mr. Quinton, at that time that you brought Mr. Larson into the office of this Bill Fairchild residence, there was a tape recording there which recorded all questions and all answers in the entire proceedings that occurred from the time that you arrived up to the time that you left, was there not? I object to that. There is a proper time for this to be gone into. Sustained. I'm awfully sorry for this interruption, but I have to practice law the only way that I know how, Your Honor. Comes now the defendant, who would offer to prove by the witness. Mr. Quinton is your name, isn't it, sir? Yes. If you were permitted to testify, that there was in this residence of Bill Fairchild a tape recording that had all proceedings had, including questions asked and answers given by the defendant, were recorded on the tape recording. My purpose of the offer would be, 
I understand the question was, what occurred there? What were the proceedings? And the purpose of this offer is that I would object to that question on the ground, but the tape recording would be the best evidence as to what those proceedings were, what was said. I understand they are probably laying the foundation for a statement. Are you leading to some admission or confession, Mr. Thomas? Your Honor, we are leading. What we are doing, Your Honor, is trying to lay the entire day before the jury from the time this defendant first came in contact with the authorities. We take the position that this does not lead to a confession at this point. Your Honor, I object and request the court to deny the offer upon the ground that even if the facts asserted were true, it would not show good cause for objection to the question or the line of questions we will pursue. Objection is sustained and the offer is refused. For what period of time, if you know and remember, was this defendant, Gordon Larson, present at that residence in the office at that time? He was there from approximately 4 o'clock to right about 6.30. Was he at any time under arrest while in that office? No, he was not. Was anything said with respect to arrest during the time he was there that you know of? No, not that I know of. Was he told that he was not and could leave? He was. By whom? Bill Fairchild, I believe, told him two or three times that he could leave if he wanted to, that he wasn't under arrest. And Eldon Halverson was there, was he not, for a short time? Yes, for a short time. And did the defendant at that time deny the affair with Halverson? Yes, he did. I see. Sergeant Quentin, what, if anything, if you know, took place after the two and a half hours there on North 16th? Mr. Larson and myself went down to Ada County office building, here in this building. To the prosecuting attorney's office? The prosecuting attorney's office, yes. You came back to my office? Yes. And I was there? Yes, you were. And what, if anything, was the defendant told at that time with reference to his rights? He was advised at that time that he had rights to have counsel and that he didn't have to say anything. And by whom was that advice given? By you. At the time we were talking to this defendant, Gordon Larson there, Sergeant, would you describe to this jury, if you can recall, what his general demeanor and condition was? Mr. Larson was well-dressed and probably nervous without much doubt, but very clean and cooperative to talk to. He talked and didn't get loud or anything, he just talked normally. Was he made any promises at that time? No, he wasn't. Was he under arrest? No, he wasn't. Was there any physical conduct on the part of any official there that would have any bearing to intimidate this man? No. Let's be certain of one thing, Sergeant, before we turn you to Mr. Smith. Did the defendant at that time testify that he had been in his apartment with Halverson on the 3rd? Did he state that? Yes, he stated that he had. And you have referred to some sexual relationship there. What, if anything, did he say that relationship consisted of? Mutual masturbation. And where did he say it took place? In his bedroom. I am pretty sure it was. I don't remember exactly, but I'm sure it was in his bedroom. All right. Your witness. Mutual masturbation, I believe your words are? Yes. Now, I realize, Mr. Quinton, like you said, this has been a long time. I do have notes. This Sunday afternoon that you went to see Gordon Larson was December 11th up to his apartment. Yes. I believe you drove up there in the company of another policeman, did you? Yes, I did. Do you have a memorandum on that of some kind? Yes, I took some notes. Did you make an official diary of that day, of your activity as to where you went and what you did? I had some, yes. It wasn't exactly official. It was just my... It was just for my own benefit. Is there one down to the police department that showed your diary, so to speak, for the day, what time you went here, and what time you went there? I will object to this line of cross-examination unless a foundation is laid showing that this witness will benefit by refreshing his recollection by looking at a diary. The objection is sustained. Well, it has been a long time. 
If you had the opportunity to look at your daily diary of that day or your report, you could refresh your recollection more exactly as to the time. Could you, sir? No. You feel your recollection now, a year and a half later, a year later, is more exact than your record. No, I don't feel that it is. Now then, in any event, the defendant was taken down to this private home. Yes. And you have always been in the traffic department, haven't you? I have been, yes, in traffic. As long as I have known you, haven't you been assigned to traffic with the exception of this investigation? Yes. This is the first time you have ever worked on anything outside of traffic, is it not? Well, no. Not this case, no. In any event, Mr. Larson stayed there until about 6.30, was it? Yes, sir. Now, you were not in the room all the time, were you? No, I believe I was out of the room for a while. Well, as a matter of fact, after the thing had droned along for quite a while, Mr. Fairchild, this Bill Fairchild, suggested that you and Doc House and Jim Brandon all leave the room and leave him and Gordon alone. Isn't that correct? I don't remember the exact words, but I do know that we left the defendant alone with Mr. Fairchild. So he remained alone, then the rest of the period of the time up there, along with Mr. Fairchild. I don't remember exactly how much took place after we went in, after I went back in that room. Well, this is one of, was there 16 or 17? How many people did you investigate altogether? Object, Your Honor, as to how many people were investigated. It is improper cross-examination and irrelevant to this case. Overruled. How many different people did you take up there? How many different people? And question, or grill, or grid, or whatever it was? You understand that that would include all kinds of people, all different classes of people. How many did you interview altogether? I can give you an estimate. I would certainly not. I, I couldn't tell it was complete. I would say a couple of hundred people. That included witnesses and suspects and everything. That 200? Yes. Now, I think there were some, what was it? 18 other suspects that were finally accused. I object, Your Honor. This is immaterial. I'm going to sustain this objection. Well, there's nothing, is there, Mr. Quinton, that made this particular interrogation stand out in your mind so that you would absolutely and distinctly remember that this admonition was given. You don't have to talk if you don't want to. You can go home if you want to. If you want attorneys, you can have one. Is there any reason why it should stand out? Is that what you mean? This was no different than any of the others, was it? No. We told them all that. You told them all that? Yes. Then what you are actually testifying from here, really and truly, is not from actual recollection, but you thought it was your policy to follow that in each case, and you think you followed it then? No, sir. I know we followed it then. Now you did leave the room and left Mr. Gordon with Mr. Fairchild? Yes. For a considerable time? Yes. How long was he with him alone? An hour? Half hour, three quarters of an hour, hour and a half? Half an hour or so. I don't know. I don't really know. And what occurred in there while this Bill Fairchild had this young man by himself? You don't know? No, I don't. What, if any, promises were made? What if nothing? You don't have any idea? No, I wouldn't know. I wasn't there, and I couldn't tell you. Incidentally, was there a tape recording made of that interview? I don't know whether there was or not. Then you went down to Gene Thomas's office? Yes, sir. This young man continuously denied any implication with this man when he was up to the house? Yes, he did. As a matter of fact, they brought this Eldon Halverson in there, and this Eldon Halverson made this statement about the same way he made it here. And Gordon Larson says you're a damn liar, didn't he? That's true. He called Eldon Halverson a damn liar right there. That's right. Yes, and I think Bill Fairchild then told him to sit down and shut up to, to Gordon Larson. I don't recollect that. You don't remember that? 
No, I don't. Now then, to get down real specific, the very last thing that Gordon said was he left Mr. Gene Thomas's office was that this was not an attempted blowjob. You heard that, didn't you? No, sir, because I didn't hear any confession from Mr. Larson. Did you see it written down any place that this was not an attempted blowjob? I read the confession, but I don't remember exactly what it had in it. <laughs> this is an amazing statement. I move that that answer be stricken as an opinion and conclusion of this witness and not responsive to the question. Yes, strike the answer just now given by this witness. Was there a piece of paper on Mr. Thomas's desk at the time you left his office on the 11th? Yes, there was a whole yellow pad. And there was some writing on it? Yes, there was writing on it. And you looked at it? No, I did not, and not at that time. You never looked at it? No, I never seen anything on his desk that night. I see. Very well, that is all. No further questions. The prosecution then puts another cop on the stand, Captain James Brandon, the police captain demoted by the city council. He was there that night, over Gordon Larson's shoulder, as the prosecutors questioned him in the Ada County office building, after Fairchild had already questioned him on 16th Street. The defense attorney, Smith, stands to once again try to get the Fairchild tapes brought in as evidence, and he's once again shot down by the judge. Former Chief Brandon tells his recollection of that night of interrogation that the prosecutors took down Gordon's statement on the yellow pad as they questioned him. That statement, supposedly given by Gordon, said, About noon on or about October 3rd, 1955, at my apartment at Boise Hills Village in Boise, Idaho, I had a homosexual experience with Eldon Halverson wherein I recall taking his penis into my mouth and he took my penis into his. Neither of us had an orgasm. My name is Gordon Larson, and I reside at Boise Hills Village in Boise, Idaho. The time is 8.30 p.m. Captain Brandon then explains to the jury that Gordon refused to sign his own statement, which was written by the prosecutors, until they add this sentence. This incident involved playing around and was not an attempt on my part to blow Halverson. The statement is eventually signed by Gordon Larson and witnessed by Captain Brandon and Deputy Prosecutor Gene Thomas. And as we know, it is not signed by the interrogator Bill Fairchild, who also stood over Gordon's shoulder. Fairchild didn't sign because he didn't want to be called into court as a witness. Captain Brandon then goes on, explaining to the jury that while the prosecutors went to immediately file this complaint, the captain took Gordon Larson to the police station to photograph him and take his fingerprints. Then together they went back to the county office, called a judge, and took Larson to the judge's house around 9 p.m. At the judge's house, like standing there in the living room, the judge signed the complaint and warrant for Gordon Larson's arrest. Captain Brandon, on the stand, says to the prosecutor, After reading the complaint, he advised him that he was entitled to a preliminary hearing. I don't think the defendant was fully understood what a preliminary hearing might be, and the judge gave him an explanation of what that was, what a preliminary hearing consisted of, and then the defendant sat down beside the small table, and the defendant returned to you and asked you what he should do, and I recall very distinctly you advised him as prosecutor it was not your duty to advise him, and that he should probably consult an attorney. Judge Lampert handed the defendant the complaint, and he sat there and he read it for a quite, uh, probably a few minutes, and he asked you, Mr. Thomas, who had written the complaint, and you told him that Mr. Evans had, and he stated that he did not like the last part of the complaint. 
Gordon Larson did not like the last sentence that the prosecutors added. A male human being then and there sucking the same. Gordon Larson had already explained to the officers that this was playing around, not a blowjob. Now you say that this interrogation started at 3.45. Yes, sir. In any event, it was in the afternoon. According to your testimony, it lasted, the whole thing lasted from 3.45 until 9.30. Is that when he was finally up to Judge Lampert's court? Yes, sir. During all that time, Gordon Larson was not given any opportunity to have dinner. I left. Yes, you left. And I don't know what opportunity was given then. He had run out of cigarettes early in the afternoon. He might have. Yes, when you first took him to that house, there was you and Doc House and Bill Fairchild there. Wasn't there? The three of you and the defendant? Yes, sir. Yes, when you first took him to that house, there was you and Doc House and Bill Fairchild there. Wasn't there? The three of you and the defendant? Yes, sir. And you sat around there, oh, for a couple of hours before you finally left the room? Yes, sir. Was that about how long you were there? Approximately, yeah. Yes, and this was a private home up here in the Hyde Park area that had a fireplace burning? Yes, sir. And you brought these suspects and witnesses in and set them down at a table on which there was a mirror and a glass of water? There was a glass of water, but I don't recall any mirror. Very well. And then you started into an accusation of Gordon Larson, that he was a homosexual, the four of you did? I never said one word to Larson after I advised him of his rights. You didn't say one word. Well, I believe that is true. I think that is true. Mr. Fairchild conducted this inquisition, did he not? He did. Yes, you and Doc House sat around and answered questions as Fairchild would ask you questions. Mr. Fairchild never asked me any questions. Well, let me help refresh your recollection. At one point, Mr. Fairchild was accusing Gordon Larson of being a liar. He turned to you and says, Mr. Brandon, what do you think? Is he a liar? And you said yes. And he turned to Doc House and says, what do you think? Is he a liar? And he said yes. Do you remember that? No, sir. You don't remember. I asked the counsel to be admonished to ask questions here and not make speeches. Overruled. During that entire afternoon there at this Hyde Park residence, there were you four policemen and Gordon Larson. He continued time and time and time again to tell you folks that this Halverson is not telling the truth, didn't he? While Halverson was there, he made that statement. Yes, sir. He continued time and time to assert his innocence of this. Yes, sir. And finally, Mr. Bill Fairchild suggested that you and Mr. Doc House and Mr. Quinton leave the room so that he could have him alone. He did. And so then Mr. Fairchild had him alone for about the next hour? Oh, I don't think it was an hour. Well, how long was it, Mr. Brandon? We went out and sat on the porch, and I don't think it was over 30 minutes. You think that he had him alone for 30 minutes? I think he did, yes. At this particular hearing, did somebody have a tape recorder there? Yes, there was a tape recorder. There was a tape recorder. And when you said on examination a while ago when I asked you, was there a tape recorder, and you said no, you were not telling the truth? You asked me if a recording was taken. Was there a tape recorder there being used then? There was one there, but to my knowledge, I don't know whether it was being used or not. You say there was a tape recorder there at Mr. Fairchild's place of business? Yes, there was. And there was a stack of tapes there? Was there not? Yeah, I saw some tape there. And it was there to be used, was it not? I will object, Your Honor, to the question as improper. Sustained. And you don't know whether a tape recording was taken of Gordon Larson's interview? No, sir, I do not. Now, Mr. Brandon, you say you used to be the chief of police. You are not anymore? No, sir. You were relieved from that office, were you not? Yes, sir. As a matter of fact, at the time that this homosexual investigation was going on, Mr. Brandon, 
you were somewhat under fire yourself. Your Honor, I will object. Let me finish my question. I request that counsel be admonished not to continue that question. He is trying to change the subject from the guilt of this defendant. Again, Your Honor. Objection sustained. It shows the status of this witness at the time this investigation was made. I have ruled. Very well. Now, you were also present when this Eldon Halverson was brought in, were you not? Yes, sir. Mr. Fairchild gave this Eldon Halverson $3 or some money and told him he could leave. Yes, sir. After he had accused Mr. Larson. I believe it was $3 he gave him. After having admitted or claimed that he, in the presence of you as Chief of Police, Doc House, Deputy Sheriff, and Mr. Fairchild, Chief Investigator, after having claimed that he had committed a homosexual act. He did. He walked out of that room, and to this date, Mr. Brandon, Mr. Eldon Halverson has never been charged with any crime. Not to my knowledge. If you believed Mr. Halverson, you would file a complaint against him, would you? Object to that as incompetent, irrelevant, improper cross. Overruled. You don't believe Mr. Halverson, do you? Yes, I believed him. You believed him. You prefer to believe him and disregard your duty? Objection, Your Honor. It is irrelevant. It is incompetent and not- No further cross-examination of this witness. Gordon Larson's attorney, Mr. Smith, did his best. But he didn't succeed in totally discrediting either police officer or nudging the jury to question why Bill Fairchild kept himself and his tapes out of the courtroom. So Smith will have to put his client, Gordon Larson, on the stand. As long as the jury believes Gordon Larson, there is not enough corroborating evidence to back up Eldon Halverson's accusation. The subpoena is outstanding for Mr. Bill Fairchild. The subpoena is outstanding for Mr. Bill Fairchild. Is Mr. Bill Fairchild in the courtroom? I understood that it had not been served, but I wanted to check. Call the defendant, Gordon Larson. Will you please state your name? Gordon Larson. Are you a married man or a single man? Single. Have you been married? Yes, sir. Where are you living now, Gordon? In Spokane, Washington. How long have you been living in Spokane? Since last January. Did anything occur in this community last January or December that occasioned your moving from Boise? Uh, yes, sir. I see. Now, do you recall the 11th day of December, 1955? Yes, very vividly. Do you recall meeting a man by the name of, that you now know as Sergeant Quinton? Yes. Where did you meet him? He came to my door at the apartment and showed me his badge. Where were you living then? In Boise Hills Village. And what, if any, request did he make? He said, I would like to have you come downtown. An officer wants to talk to you. Come with me. An officer downtown wanted to talk to you? Yes. Hmm. Did you go with him? Yes. Did he tell you what he wanted? No, he didn't. I asked him at the time, and he says, well, you will find out in a few minutes. You will find out. Then what did you do? I went with him. I went out and got in the car. There was another fellow driving it, and presumably a police car. Any conversation on the way down? No. None at all. Now, when you went in, I want you to describe the general, the inside of this house. Well, as I tell you, it was an old house, and you went into a small hallway and turned to the left and went into what I suppose was a part of the living room. 
and it had a fireplace burning and two desks to the back and there was one light on the desk and they had a venetian blind closed tight and there were a few chairs around the room and it's all about i can remember of the room yes now you were asked to sit down someplace yes they asked me to sit down at the desk across from mr fairchild mr fairchild there were two desks back to back and he was sitting over there and you were sitting here yes what was on the table well on the desk facing me there was a glass of water and a mirror which way did the mirror face it faced me it faced you now i want you to relate to this jury in your own words the best that you can recall what happened during that period of time that you were out there at that house on 16th street well, I don't know who made the introductions. Somebody introduced Mr. Fairchild and Doc House and Chief Brandon and this cop who came after me, Quinton. And then they told me to sit down. And they wanted to have a talk with me about the homosexual investigation in Boise. So they started talking and they said, you know, you can give us some help. And I said, well, what kind of help can I give you? And they says, well, we know you're a homo. And I said, well, what makes you think so? And Mr. Fairchild said, well, I have been studying homosexuality all my life, and I know one when I see it. He said, I could tell when you were walking in the door that you were a homo by the way you walk. And I said, well, just because a person walks a certain way doesn't make them a homo. And he said, well, it does in my books, because I've been studying homosexuality and I know all about it. So they said they wanted, they told me about the investigation going on here in Boise, about cleaning up the homosexual situation and trying to protect our children and everything, so that they knew that I had something to offer and that if I did, I would be cooperative. So I told them I was in complete agreement with them and that they had the right to protect and conduct an investigation if there was children involved. And so they kept, I kept saying that I don't have anything to offer. I would be glad to help you out if I could, but there's nothing that I have that could help you out. And they says, well, we know you can, and we know that you are, in so many words. And they were just accusing me and calling me names. And I mean, they didn't mince any matters as far as terminology they used when they were talking to me. And they called me a queer, and as I say, a homo, and all this stuff. And so this went on and on and on. And I told them I would be glad to help them if I could, but there wasn't nothing I knew. So then they said, okay, we'll show you. So they told this cop, they said, okay, go out and get him. So we went out and got this Halverson. I didn't know who it was at the time or his name and brought him in and stood him in the doorway. And they said to Halverson, is that the man? And Halverson said, yes. And then they said to Halverson, well, now you tell us what happened when you went up to his apartment. And Halverson said, well, he asked me up to his apartment and he blew me and I blew him. And I stood up and I said, you're a damn liar. And they told me to shut up and sit down. Who told you to shut up and sit down? Fairchild. All right. And then they said to Halverson, would you swear to that in court? And he said he would. And they asked him his name and he said he was 21. And then Fairchild threw three $1 bills and says, okay, buddy, here's some gas money. Go on home. Now, what comment... Go ahead. And Fairchild said to me, he says, See, Gordon, he says, that's what happens to a guy who cooperates. Now, it could happen to you if you would just cooperate. 
And I said, well, there's nothing to cooperate about. I didn't do anything. I haven't done anything. I can't give you guys any information. And they say, okay, if you want to make it hard on yourself. Let's go back. And what accusations, if any, were made about whether or not you were telling the truth? Well, at one time there, I mean, this all happened over a period of a couple hours. And when they kept telling me that I was a homo and that I knew something and that they wanted to know and I wouldn't tell them, they kept calling me. Well, first he said, well, we think you're just lying, Fairchild. We think you're just plain lying to us. And Fairchild turned to Doc and said, don't you think he's lying, Doc? And House said yes. And then he turned to Brandon and said, don't you think he's lying, Brandon? And Brandon said yes. So there I sat, a great big liar in their estimation. Now, was there any discussion of a school or or what did this Fairchild tell you about a school? Well, he told me, he said, you know about all these investigations that were going on? And I said, yes, I read about them in the paper. And he said, we are trying to help these fellows. We are not picking them up and accusing them of criminal acts. We want to help them. And I says, fine. And he says, we're setting up a rehabilitation, a psychiatric school or something, some kind of training program here that we are sending, that we are sending these fellows to school. I mean, they're going to have psychiatric treatment. And he says, we can do the same thing for you. And I said, well, I don't think I need any psychiatric treatment. And he says, well, your name won't be mentioned. He says, you can go to this school. Nobody's names will be mentioned and nobody will know about it. You can go to these schools and be recuperated or rehabilitated. And so all we want you to do is cooperate with us. And that's what all we want you to do. You can go to this school. No names will be mentioned. Now, did the occasion arise during this? How, how long do you think you were there with him before Doc House and Brandon left? Oh, I must have been there a good hour or an hour and a half. Were they there all that time? Yes, they were there all the time until Fairchild said, well, maybe he tried to get real friendly with me. And he says, well, maybe, Gordon, you and I, you could talk better if you and I were just here alone. What did he call you then? He called me Gordy. Gordy. He wanted to talk to you alone. And then what happened? So then he sent Doc House and Brandon and this cop out of the room and closed the door. And he says, "Okay, Gordy, let's talk man to man. Now, at that point, I want to ask you, did the occasion ever arise during that afternoon when you were advised that there was a tape recording? Yes. I didn't know it at first, but, oh, it must have been 45 minutes to an hour, and Fairchild stood up and said, will you excuse me a minute while I change the tape? And that's the first time I knew that there was a tape recorder. So he took down some tapes off the filing cabinet up in the back of him, and he says... Of course, we aren't never going to use these. They're just for my record because I don't have a secretary. So I waited for him while he changed the tape. And that tape recording would show every answer and question. As far as I know. Now then, after all the others left and he wanted to get buddy-buddy with you, proceed then with what happened. Well, he tried to tell me. He started asking me, he says. Come on now and tell us about this incident with Halverson, with this fellow I just brought in. And I said, there was no incident. I don't even recognize the man. And at that time, I didn't recognize him. And so then he said, well, come on now. We know all about you and we know what you did. So why don't you cooperate with us? And he just kept dwelling on this cooperation deal. And so finally he says, well, you know, we can make it tough on you if you don't cooperate. So then I began to wonder, well, now what should I do? I mean, I admit to something I didn't do because the first thing that I could think of 
all I could think of at the time was the publicity in the paper. And I was proposing marriage in January. And I had also just got this new job, which was actually a real position. And all I could think of was my name being spread all over the paper and everything going to pot. And that is all I could think of. And I mean, when they started telling me that they would make it tough on me, and I began to wonder, well, if I cooperated in admitting something that I didn't do, would they just let me go like they did Halverson? I mean, here Halverson stood right there and admitted a homosexual act, and they let him go because he was cooperative. So I thought to myself, well, I mean, if he can get away with it, I mean, he actually admitted it right out, and out he walks on the street, free, and his name hasn't been in the paper. I began to turn it over in my mind whether I should admit to something I didn't do in order to get the heck out of there. What happened then? What did he do? He said, well, we'll show you. And then he picked up the phone and made a phone call. I don't know to who. And then he said, okay, if you don't want to cooperate with us, you are going to make it hard on yourself. That's all. You are just going to make it difficult for yourself. He stood up and then he paced the floor. And by that time, it was practically dark in there. There was nothing but the desk lamp left. He kept pounding out his ashes of his pipe on the ashtray. And he said, why don't you just admit to this insignificant incident and everything will be fine. Just admit to this and I will make a phone call back and nothing will happen. All I said was, okay. And he says, okay, buddy, you are a good boy. Sit down. So then he made a phone call back to somebody, whoever he talked to and says, well, Gordy is cooperating. He is going to be a good boy and he's going along with us. Now, what was your frame of mind at this time if you didn't cooperate? What would happen to you? Well, I was practically at the desperation point. Larson continues his side of the story, that after Fairchild interrogated him in the secret house on 16th Street, they went to the county office to talk to the prosecutors. Prosecutor Gene Thomas wrote down his statement for him on a yellow pad, and Gordon continued to insist all evening that he never put Halverson's penis into his mouth. At the time I signed this paper, I was almost at my wit's end as of what to do. Now, did Mr. Thomas add to that statement about this not being a blowjob before you signed it? Uh, yes, sir. And you didn't want to sign it until he put that on. And did you all understand what the word blowjob meant? Well, I picked up a lot of new expressions. (laughs) What did the word, or how was the word used? What significance was given to that word? Blowjob? Yes. Taking the penis in one's mouth? And that was understood by everybody. I suppose. Now, had you had anything to eat all this day? No, I hadn't. Did you smoke? Yes. Did you smoke then? I had run out of cigarettes. When? Up there at the house. While you were there in Mr. Thomas's office, did everybody stay there? No, up there at the house, Mr. Fairchild kept saying, let's get this over with. I'm hungry and I want to go to dinner. So he didn't come down to the courthouse with us. So I understood he must have gone to dinner, and Brandon must have gone to dinner, and then when Brandon came back and relieved Quentin, Quentin went to dinner. Now after you signed that statement, did they let you go? Nope. What did they do with you? Well, they took me over to the police station and photographed me and took my fingerprints and made records. Arrested me. And then where did they take you? They took me back to the courthouse, and I waited around there until Thomas and Brandon took me up to Lambert's house. And what happened there at Judge Lampern's house? Well, Mr. Lambert was sitting across, like a card table, and when they handed him that document, he said to me, Is this true? And I said, No, sir. And he said, What part is not? And he had the document facing him, and I reached over the table and pointed to the latter part of it, taking the penis in my mouth, and I said, That is not true. 
And he said, is the rest of it? And I said, well, yes, but that is the main point of it. Gordon, did you ever take the penis of this Halverson into your mouth? I did not. Did Halverson ever take his into yours? He did not. Will you tell the jury what happened with that man, Halverson, that sat on this stand yesterday? You tell your story now. Well, as I was taking orders for the restaurants, as I said, at the time I was working as a salesman for Boise Fruit, and I had been to the Boise Hotel, and I walked down the alley of Watson's Cafe, which is adjacent to the railway's bus depot, and I had taken my order from Watson's Cafe, and I had my car parked on the west side of the Henderson's Furniture Store. And as I was crossing the street, this fellow was standing on the street corner, and he spoke to me. And I didn't know him, at least there was no recollection of an acquaintance there at all. And he talked to me for a minute, and asked me where, what I was doing, and I told him, and he asked me where I was going, and I said I was going home for lunch, and that, that was about all I said there. And I could not recognize the guy. I mean, I see men now and then that I've gone to school with up at the university, and I've seen before, but I don't know their names. You know, you just say hello, or I mean, you don't know them really. So I got in my car and started home. And as I was coming up 8th Street at one of the stoplights, I can't remember which one, I looked at the rearview mirror and he was following me. He was in the car behind me. I didn't know at the time that he was following me, and then I went up home and drove into my usual parking spot and parked and got out of my car. And he also drove in and parked and got out of his car and followed me up to my apartment. Well, I thought right then that there was something funny. Either I know the guy or I should know the guy, or it is one of those things that I've heard about, about some fruit trying to follow you home. So I went on up in my apartment and he followed me up and he came right in the apartment and he was still talking and fairly pleasant. So I didn't, I, I didn't kick him out right at the time because I heard about these things happening and I thought, well, finally, I mean, I'm being made. And so he came into my apartment and I fixed myself a sandwich and a glass of milk and I walked in my bedroom or something, or in the bathroom, or in the bedroom, I guess it was, and for something, and he followed me in there, and he started to, he grabbed a hold of my privates, and I says, well, man, you've got the wrong guy, and you better hit the road, and he didn't persist or resist, he left, and that's all that happened. Did you hear his story yesterday about you having driven up to his car and said, hi, meet me at the park? Yes. Did that occur? Never. Did you hear a story about you then met him at the park and drove up to the house? I was never down to the park. You were never down to the park. Well, I mean, I have been down to the park over a period of years, but I was never down to the park that day. That is all. You may cross-examine. Taking orders for the mode. No, at the time this happened, I was still working for Boise Fruit. Oh, I see. You were still working for the Boise Fruit. On this October, whatever date it was. Did you go into the Greyhound bus depot? No. You didn't? I didn't because it wasn't one of my accounts. I see. Now, as I understand it, Mr. Larson, you got out of your car and went into your apartment. Yes. And he followed you? Yes. When you went into your apartment, you washed your hands first, is that correct? No. You fixed your sandwich first? If I remember correctly, it is sort of vague. I went up there and had a sandwich and a glass of milk. You ate the sandwich and a glass of milk? Yes. Now, you said when you were in front of Hills Village before you went to your apartment, you were on the lot and you saw him get out of the car. At that point, you realized that Halverson was probably, what did you call it, a fruit? Yes. 
And you thought he was going to make you, to use your terminology? Yes, mainly. I heard the expression. So you went up to your apartment and had a sandwich and a glass of milk? Yes. What was he doing while you were eating the sandwich and drinking the milk? He was just standing there in the living room. Did you have a conversation with him? No, there wasn't much conversation. Did you invite him into the apartment? No, I did not. Did you offer him anything to eat? No, I didn't offer him a sandwich. Now, this man was a complete and utter stranger to you? Well, Blaine, as I said, I didn't know whether he was a complete stranger to me. I mean, I could have gone to school with him or something, but I could not recollect. But at the time I thought, well, I'm being followed, and it sort of fascinated me. Hmm. You didn't recognize him, though? On the corner there? No, I didn't. He didn't know you by name, either? No, I don't think he called me by my name. Well, let's go back for a few minutes here and discuss this matter of your interrogation in the prosecuting attorney's office on December 11th, 1955. Mr. Quinton and Mr. Thomas were in the office with you, weren't they? Here in the courthouse? Yes. At the start of it, yes. And did you suggest to Mr. Thomas that you were hungry and you wanted to go and eat? No, I didn't. Did you tell him you were out of cigarettes? I can't remember. Didn't he offer you a cigarette? I can't remember, Blaine, whether he did or not. As a matter of fact, wasn't Mr. Thomas very courteous to you? Very courteous. Very polite. Very sweet and soft-spoken. Not harsh at all? No. Very friendly, wasn't he? Very friendly. And so was Officer Quentin, wasn't he? He didn't have much to say. As a matter of fact, you weren't at all afraid of anybody or anything while you were down there at the prosecutor's office, were you? Well, I was practically numb from fright, to tell you the truth. Well, Mr. Thomas... Fairchild had broken me down before I had gotten there. As I said, I was just humbly broken down completely. Well, you carried on a normal conversation with Mr. Thomas, didn't you? I don't know whether you could call it normal or not. Well, you carried on a conversation with him. Well, if you want to call it a conversation... You went up to Judge Lampert's and carried on a conversation there, didn't you? Not very much of one. Now, while you were there sitting in Mr. Thomas's office, the prosecutor's office, when I came in, you recall I came in and talked to you there for a minute? No, I don't remember that. Don't you remember when I came and we talked about the University of Idaho for a few minutes? No, I can't remember, Blaine. Really, I can't remember that. And I asked you when you got started in this homosexual activities and you told me you got started in the Army. Object to that question as being incompetent, irrelevant, and no foundation laid. Overruled. Do you remember that? No, I don't remember that. And you don't remember that I asked you how you got started in the Army and you said you were alone with men on the post a lot and you used to go in the shower room and that's where you got started? No. You don't remember that? No, I don't remember that at all. Do you remember discussing with Mr. Thomas other homosexual experiences you had? No, because I haven't had any, Blaine. You haven't had any other homosexual experiences? No. No. Do you regard yourself as a homosexual? I do not. Do you remember telling Mr. Thomas that you used to frequent bars and men would pick you up in the bar and you would have a homosexual affair with them? I certainly do not. You don't remember that at all? I do not. Do you remember talking about Mel Durr and... And No! Don't you remember that you said that usually you had these affairs after you had had a few drinks of whiskey? No, I don't remember that because there were no affairs. Now, did you read this state's exhibit before you signed it? That yellow p- I read it, yes, very quickly. And you suggested, as I understand, to Mr. Thomas that he add a phrase to that. Yes. And that phrase was that this wasn't a blowjob. Yes. What is a blowjob? Well, as I interpret it, it is taking the penis in one's mouth. Well, it means more than that, doesn't it? 
it means causing them to have an orgasm, doesn't it? Well, I suppose. Well, the generally accepted term among homosexuals, that is what it means. Is that right? I suppose. I don't know. Well, you used the term that night. They had been using it all day. Well, irrespective of those who had been using it, you used it that night. Is that right? Yes. That's right. And by that, you meant having an orgasm by mouth. Isn't that right? No, that's not right. What do you mean? I just meant by a blowjob that they had been using all day was taking a penis in one's mouth. Well, where is that exhibit? If that is what you meant, this statement says, I recall taking his penis into my mouth and he took my penis into his. And then it goes on to say, this was not a blowjob. Why didn't you simply say, strike out that business about taking the penis into the mouth, if blowjob meant the same thing? Because I thought by putting that amendment on the piece of paper that it would take care of the rest of it. What you actually meant was you admitted taking the penis in your mouth, but you wanted to deny having an orgasm. Isn't that right? No. That is the reason you signed this? Let him answer the question. He answered it. What I mean is by not having a blowjob is by not even taking the penis into the mouth. Well, you say involved playing around here. What do you mean by playing around? I said when he grabbed for my private parts, I suppose that is called playing around. And so you took your pants down. No. And he took his down. He did not. Do you mean to tell me if you had such a horror of homosexual experiences that you would voluntarily admit to this type of action and sign your name to it? At the state of mind I was in, I was ready to admit anything, Blaine. There was no pressure on you at the time you signed this? No pressure? Everything was very pleasant in the prosecutor's office. Very pleasant, yes, for you guys, but what about me? Did Mr. Thomas threaten you? All but threatened me, yes, not in so many words. You told me he had been very polite and very courteous. Very polite and very courteous. That was a threat in itself. Now, when you went out to Bill Fairchild's, you went voluntarily out there with Officer Quentin, didn't you? Yes, but when an officer comes and knocks at your door and shows you his badge, you don't really think it's voluntary. But you went out. You didn't refuse to go? No, I didn't refuse to As go. As a matter of fact, both Fairchild and Thomas told you you could leave? They did not. Not once did they mention that. Well now, you recall when you signed the statement, it says, doesn't it, that it might be used against me. I don't remember the exact text of it. Well, that is what it said. You guys had me so shook up, I just didn't know which end was up at the time. Well, I wasn't there conducting this hearing. I mean, your able assistant. I had two alternatives. So... In other words... Just let him answer the question. I had two alternatives. Either confess to something I didn't do and go home, or resist and be charged. A number of these people had already been arrested, hadn't they? Yes. And you knew that, didn't you? Yes. And you were going to tell this jury that you thought if you signed this, you would simply go home and forget about it? That is my impression they led me to believe, yes. So you signed something that wasn't true. Something that admitted on its face that you were a homosexual and had committed the infamous crime against nature. I admitted everything up to the point of taking the penis in my mouth and I resisted. I told Thomas time and time again that I didn't do it, but I thought I would be courteous and kind and go along with you guys as far at that point if I could go home. And then after a while, after you talked to Fairchild a little bit longer... Then suddenly, you did remember that you had known Halverson. Is that correct? Well, after all the threats and accusations... Never mind this stuff about threats. Just answer the question. Did you then remember that you had been with Halverson? I recollected that could have been the person that they were referring to. And that was true. You had been with Halverson. Yes. 
so that all this long interrogation resulted in you telling something that was the truth, that you had been with Halverson. Is that correct? I told him about the incident, about him following me home and coming up to my apartment and everything, except there was no homosexual act committed. Did you tell him about the, make the statement about masturbation? There was no statement about masturbation. The word never came up. And what time was it that day when you got to your apartment on October 3rd? Well, it must have been shortly afternoon. Afternoon. As I understand it, when you got there, you parked your car, and he parked his car two cars away from you, and you got out of your car and went to your apartment. Was there any conversation at that time? No. He simply followed you in? Yes. And when you got to the door of your apartment, was there any conversation there? No, not that I can remember. You just walked in, and he followed you in. Now, at that time, you thought he was a homosexual. Yes, I became... I, I began to get suspicious. And you were worried about being made. Yes. But you walked into your apartment, and he just docilely followed you along. And you said nothing whatsoever about it. Is that your story? Yes, because I was fascinated by... Well, then you had a sandwich and a glass of milk and still said nothing to him? I was fascinated by the guy. Yes. And he stood by and watched you eat a sandwich and a glass of milk, and he said nothing. Well... And then you got up and walked into your bedroom, and he followed. And then he grabbed your private parts, and you said, get out. And he left. Is that your story? That's my story. That's the truth. That's all. That's all, Gordon. Thank you. Tune in next week for the final episode. You'll hear the verdict on Gordon Larson and a missive from the Mattachine. Big thanks to my stars, whose voices you might recognize from the original seasons. The accuser, Eldon Halverson, was played by Lucian Grateri. Officer Ernest Quinton was played by Julian Hall. Wait, can we hold this? I am a fucking traffic cop? <laughs> oh my god! Officer James Brandon was played by Brian Rowe. Defense attorney Vernon Smith was played by Salvio Gatto. You were looking for a homosexual experience, weren't you? Not in the Greyhound bus depot. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that line is really funny. I know. It's not there. Know, that's funny, but it really was this time. <laughs> the bloopers. <laughs> I know. I love the blooper reel. I really do. <laughs> the defendant, Gordon Larson, was played by Cody Kasubowski. You guys had me shook up. I just didn't know which end was up at the... <laughs> you guys had me shook up. I just didn't know which end was up at the time. You guys had me shook up. I just... <laughs> I shouldn't and Judge Kolsch was played by my dad, Matt Camp. I have ruled. I have ruled. I've ruled. <laughs> Stay tuned to hear me read some credits if you like. And in the meantime, you can visit QueerSerial.com or QueerSerial on Instagram for the complete series episode guide and lots of images and videos from the true history on this podcast. If you want bonus episodes featuring exclusive interviews with queer legends and spin-off stories from Queer Serial, you can now subscribe to get the full catalog of bonus episodes for $2.99 on Apple Podcasts. 
It's super easy. Just visit the Queer Serial Show page on Apple Podcasts. You can also get all of those bonus episodes, plus Queer History Archive dives and exclusive behind-the-scenes peeks into production on my documentary by subscribing to my Patreon now through Spotify. It's super easy. Just open Spotify and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows, and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. That Spotify feed will also give you access to everything on my Patreon. Or if you just want the bonus episodes, you can save a whole penny and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. By the way, the documentary I mentioned is basically a sequel project to Queer Serial. It's created by me and Jim Morrow at Viridian Coast Studios, and it's all about archiving Randy Wicker's gay forest gump of a life. And it's about his extended gay family, including Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and so many more people whose names deserve to be written into our history. The Wicker Family documentary is very much a queer serial movie. You can help support my work archiving Randy and Marsha's materials with the LGBT Center Archives here in New York, an ongoing years-long process, and see behind the scenes of that project and its documentary at patreon.com slash queerserial. You can also support my work by shopping in my Etsy store, etsy.com slash shop slash queerhistoryuplift or just by subscribing to bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Patreon. Every little bit of support helps. Okay, thanks for listening. Here are the credits. Resources for this series include John Garrisey's 1965 book, The Boys of Boise, Seth Randall's 2006 documentary, The Fall of 55, and Intimate Matters, A History of Sexuality in America by John D'Amelio and Estelle B. Friedman. Find more info at QueerSerial.com. To learn more about America's history of gay panics and their causes, listen to Queer Serial Season 1, Episode 4, The Lavender Scare. Music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. The theme song, It's Noisy Out in Boise, Idaho, is a 1949 song by the King's Jesters. Could that be more perfect for a Mattachine production? This show is entirely supported by subscribers on Patreon and by bonus episode subscribers on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just $2.99 a month. Thank you. Queer Serial is written, hosted, edited, produced, etc. by me, Devlin Camp. What a cool job. Bye. And now, a word from our sponsor. You can listen to the first four seasons of Queer Serial free wherever you're listening to this episode right now. Hear the story of American queer liberation from its roots in the 1920s all the way through to Stonewall and beyond. If you'd like to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects, like the Randy Wicker and Marsha P. Johnson archives and my documentary currently in production, you can subscribe to bonus episodes of Queer Serial. It's $2.99 a month to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you subscribe for $3 a month, one cent more on Spotify or Patreon, you can also see my Queer History archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary. That gets you everything I've ever posted on Patreon since the podcast started in 2017, and all of my bonus episodes, the Queer Serial spinoff stories, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riot interviews, Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. And you can go ahead and see everything on that list in the episode guide at queerserial.com episodes. If you'd like to support my queer history work and get some gay merch for it, visit my new Etsy shop. I've got lots of podcast merch from throughout the series, lots of unique queer history-related items that make cute gifts, like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar, featured in season two, some lovely mugs with rainbow maps that say queer history is world history. I have Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always. 
from a note she wrote to Randy that's in her archive that I've been processing at the LGBT Center here in New York. My Etsy also has other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested and also stickers that you can put in textbooks that lack queer history to warn future readers of that book. Lots of stickers and buttons and fun stuff like that. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There are links to all of this and the bonus episodes and everything in the episode notes here and on my Instagram at Queer Serial and at QueerSerial.com. Thank you all so much for your support. You've enabled me to do so much over the past six years. I'm so grateful. Okay, that's it. That's my ad. 